0: Let's pray for our time in the Word now. Lord, we do thank you for your Word. Lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And Lord, we uh, again thank you for your goodness. We pray that you guide us and lead us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Daniel chapter 11. And while you're doing that, I'm on Keynote, it's Keynote Remote, there he is, you like that guy? Today we end the book of Daniel and we say goodbye to this guy. We'll get through it, okay? So, uh, if you're new, we love this. Uh, this is a great uh, teaching opportunity, this this guy. This is the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, obviously artist depicted uh, from Daniel chapter 2, which again I consider the backbone of, of biblical prophecy, and I just want to review uh, briefly, and we'll kind of... Um, bring that into what we're going to talk about today. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, uh, Daniel chapter 2, and, and only Daniel was able to give actually uh, to recount what the dream was and uh, what it it meant and basically the dream was he had this picture this image uh, that had a head of gold and Daniel said well that represents you uh, the king of the Babylonian Empire and he said after you is going to come another empire that's represented by silver and that's the Medo-Persian Empire and then after that is going to come an empire uh, represented by bronze and that's the Greek Empire and after that is going to come the Roman Empire, represented by uh, iron legs. And then at the end, he says, uh, there's going to be another empire that uh, is like two feet with ten toes. And uh, that has yet to happen. But all these others happened with exquisite specificity and detail. Please catch that. Exquisitely Accurate, not a metaphor. We're not reading ink blots. We're not, you know, all that. This is this is very specific. It's specifically laid out by Daniel, and and thus far, all the way to the to the feet, it's been carried out thus far. And so, uh, this the feet and toes is some type of revived Roman Empire. Different Bible teachers. Um, kind of draw up different scenarios, and we shouldn't speculate too much, but just uh, what the scripture says, and we know that out of that ten-toe, if you will, ten-nation alliance uh, out of Europe, most people believe, because it's sort of a revived Roman Empire, so there's going to be some kind of like um, alliance of European nations that's probably got ten parts to it, and out of that is going to come... Uh, the character that we know biblically as the Antichrist. And so uh, we've been talking a little bit about that. Uh, In a couple other chapters, we talked about the Greek Empire. We started the Greek Empire last week, and uh, it was very clearly prophesied early in uh, chapter 11 that the Greek Empire would rise with a man by the name of Alexander the Great, and after him, it's going to break into four parts. We highlighted two of the parts as it related to biblical history, and uh, two of those parts were the Ptolemaic Kingdom around the region of Egypt. Well, they call it Ptolemaic because all the kings were named Ptolemy: Ptolemy the First, Ptolemy the Second, Ptolemy the All that, and then the Seleucid Empire up to the north. Uh, Uh, and um, basically these nations were kind of warring back and forth. We went into, um, and again, I hope you know by now, I always highlight the fact that prophecy is to be interpreted, I believe, as literal as possible, whenever possible, right? Revelation, we hear about, you know, there's a rider on a white horse. Well, that probably represents something. But by and large, usually we get the answer even in the text of the Scripture. But we need to not allegorize the, the uh, prophetic word uh, any more than is absolutely required. And so we went back and forth last week. I, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. It was almost dizzying, was it not? Raise your hand if you were dizzy by the end of last week. <laughs> Me too. Um, uh, of just all of the details. Some have said that there were like 130 uh, prophetic details that were carried out explicitly as Daniel had said. And so uh, those things have happened thus far. And so we find ourselves, we ended last week with a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He's Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth. He was one of the Seleucid kings. He um, as a part of his rampage, got really upset with the, uh, with the Jewish people. He went into the temple there in Jerusalem, and you notice I highlighted last week, you know, you imagine this, this kingdom fighting against this kingdom, this kingdom, this kingdom, back and forth, back and forth. Right in there in the middle is the nation of Israel, Right? And uh, it's called the crossroads of the world, right? It always has been and always will be, even in future times, right? Think about this little piece of real estate the size of New Jersey, right? It connects Asia, Europe, and Africa. Is that crazy? It's crazy. And uh, within that, I can tell you, um, I learned this actually just this year as having been there. Um, Within the crossroads... There's, we won't have a blow up of Israel itself, but there's a little valley here that uh, serves as a crossroads within the nation because to the east there uh, is sort of mountainous and it's sort of mountainous to the north. And so, you know, whenever uh, – um, or mountains well, it doesn't show up here, but you got the Sea of uh, Galilee up above, the Dead Sea down below, and there's just a very specific area. Uh, it looks small on the map, but it's huge if you're, if you're there, called the Valley of Megiddo, which has biblical ramifications we'll talk about today. But it's a huge valley, so it's sort of the crossroads of the nation of Israel, which is the crossroads of the world. Fair enough? So you get the idea kind of uh, from that. So last week we read up to Um, verse 35 of chapter 11, and um, that carried us up to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, and then I think the scripture makes a jump here on verse 36, and that's why we, we stopped there. Everybody with me so far? Do I need to go back and do everything we did last week? No, 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 please no, please no. Let me just say again, I know I reiterate this, and I want to reiterate it loud and clear. Because, you know, we all have different, uh, I love that we have different church backgrounds, okay? I'll always love that. And I love that the Bible is our common denominator, right? So if we want to sort out doctrine, if we want to sort out prophecy, if we want to sort out all this, we go to the Scripture. Well, I think as as, as I read the Scripture as just straight up as I can, there's two things that I think we have to anchor onto in terms of biblical prophecy. Number one... What I just said, wherever it's possible to interpret it literally, interpret it literally. Okay. And number two, any prophecy related to the nation of Israel is to be interpreted as applying to the nation of Israel. There are some that would say that, the, that God just kind of cast aside the Jewish people and replaced that with the church. And so all those prophecies that relate to Israel now relate to the church. I don't believe that's true at all. Uh, number one, that tells us that God breaks promises. Okay? So you just, if that's, if that's true, we just basically undermine the character of God. And so, number one, I don't think God does that. Number two, a lot of that thinking came about, you've got to keep in mind, the nation of Israel ceased to exist from 70 A.D., until 1948 so it was a legitimate problem in trying to interpret the scripture right well now we have the hindsight of knowing that Israel is in fact a nation it's, it's very believable that there could be some prophetic scripture that relates to the nation of Israel specifically and so if you go if, if you interpret prophecy literally as much as possible and if you uh, apply the nation the, the, the prophecies about Israel to Israel then I think, honestly, I don't wanna, and, and I wouldn't fight anybody over this, right? I mean, if you ask, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him, I'm going to fight you over that if you don't agree with that. Is that fair? But I'm not going to fight you over prophecy because it's all going to, as, as my pastor in Indianapolis used to say, he's all about pantheology, it's all going to pan out in the end, right? We're going to be a little more specific than that, um, but um, you'll find out. Now, however... There are things that go along. If if you believe that prophecy is interpreted literally and that the nation of Israel uh, is the beneficiary of those prophecies, okay, then there's going to be some things that go along with it. I liken it like this. You like my metaphors? Yes. Absolutely. We could we could we could try harder, but that's okay. If you're going on, if you're at Scottsburg, and we'll say you got a full tank of gas and the tank's got it's a 50-gallon tank of gas, right? And you've got the, you know, you've got a van the size of ours because we have nine children. Um, and you've got a van the size of ours packed full of uh, swimming suits and beach toys and all that stuff. We'll just say all that stuff. And you're at Scottsburg. Are you going to go north or south on 65? South. south. Good. If you got your snow skis in the car, are you going to go north or south on 65? North. If you go south with snow skis, those things just don't fit together. Is that fair? Yeah. If you go north with swimmies, that doesn't go together. Okay? And so I am personally believe... That if you go with the Bibles to be interpreted, uh, the prophecies to be interpreted as literally as possible, and that the prophecies about Israel are for Israel, then I believe it's hard not to come up with a uh, timeline that looks something like this, where we have the rapture of the church, uh, which is the end of sort of, if you will, the church age. and this is the sim- most simplistic uh, timeline I could, I could find. Uh, online. So, trying to keep it simple. And after the rapture of the church, you've got a seven-year period of time, which is called the tribulation, okay? And then at the end of that tribulation, Jesus comes back, okay? Deals with planet earth, and we're going to talk about that. That's the, val- that's the battle of Armageddon. You've probably heard that, that term. Uh, that's at the se- what we call the second coming of Jesus. And then there's a a, millennium king- a millennial kingdom that is yet here on earth Uh, Satan is bound for a thousand years and it's much like that probably the best example is it's much like the Garden of Eden it's not heaven but it's much like the Garden of Eden and then final judgment is after that a thousand year time Satan is released for a brief time and then there's uh, a final judgment and we who are believers will be with the Lord eternally that's a good thing right but for our purposes today We have this seven-year tribulation period, and have you noticed that it's broken into three-and-a-half and and -and three-and-a-half? Everybody notice that? Okay. The Antichrist will – I'm going to give you kind of the overview, and then we'll go back and read the Scripture and see how it – fill it in the details, okay? So that's my point here. The Antichrist, I believe, will um, rise to power immediately following the rapture of the church. Okay, I'll tell you from Second Thessalonians, we, if you're here on Wednesday night, last week we went through Second Thessalonians, and, and we're going to repeat that again today, but after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist will rise to power. Uh, No doubt he's alive before the rapture because he's not going to just, like, show up as an adult, you know, world leader. But um, he's going to show up after the rapture of the church as a world leader. He's going to be a tremendous peacemaker, probably win the Nobel Peace Prize. He's going to establish a covenant with the Jewish people. He's going to promise to rebuild their temple. They're going to regard him as the Messiah, okay? And this is all going to be, everything's just going to be prosperous and glorious until... Midpoint of that tribulation period, right around there, he's going to go into the holy of holies of this newly built temple, and he's going to demand to be worshipped as God. Now we've talked about, and, and then at, at that point, uh, we have what some people refer to this as the tribulation and this is the great tribulation, but we have the final three and a half years of the tribulation period, which is uh, just absolutely uh, the most horrific time in all of human history. Okay? And then at the end of that time, Jesus comes back uh, and uh, deals with planet Earth and uh, sets up the millennial kingdom. Okay? So, I think if you take our two starting points of literal interpretation and uh, applicability of the prophecies about Israel to Israel, I think this has to go with that sort of like uh, swimming suit goes with going south. Is that fair? Okay. So... I think that's all of my visual aids. Chapter 11, back up to verse 35 uh, from last week. As you call last week, as we got into those last few verses leading up to verse 35, the guy we're talking about is Antiochus Epiphanes. Why is he such a big deal? Because he went in, as I started to say earlier, he went into the Holy of Holies, sets up an altar to Zeus, and sacrifices a pig on it in to be an act of the most uh, treacherous mockery he could commit to the Jewish people. And, that was, and as a result of that, he's referred to as a picture, a type, a forerunner of the Antichrist. So what he did is similar to what the Antichrist is going to do. Not exactly, and we'll pull out the details here. So verse 35, it says, And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end. So Daniel now makes a shift. He's starting to talk about the end because it is still for the appointed time. Verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. So I want you to notice this. We've been talking about the Egyptian and the Seleucid kings kind of building up to this guy Antiochus Epiphanes. And now we're making a shift, I believe, to a time of the end. Now, why do I say we can do that? Because it doesn't really spell that out as specifically as we'd like for it to, if that makes sense. Well, you remember, I said that Antiochus Epiphany set up an altar to Zeus, right? Well, this guy, this king we're talking about, magnifies himself above every god. Okay, so many Bible scholars would say Antiochus Epiphanes, as evil as he was, he sort of uh, honored the Greek mythology gods, the god of Zeus. Okay, and this king that we're talking about now exalts himself above every god. And so uh, the idea that it's talking about the time of the end. Now we're making a shift and this doesn't exactly fit with Antiochus Epiphanes. So it seems like this may now, we're going from near to far. And this is a pattern in the scripture that we see a little bit. With the prophecy, we'll go from near to far. I want to give you another example of that. If it's burdensome to turn, to flip pages, don't worry about it and just listen. But if you can, turn to Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 1. When you're there, say there. says, then Jesus went out from and departed from the temple, and he, his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. This was the, you know, Herod's temple which was a magnificent structure of the time, and they were razzle-dazzled by it, and Jesus said to them, you see all these stones? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now this is interesting. This is literally fulfilled. In 70 AD, the Romans came in. Uh, they um, they Jerusalem they destroyed the temple the temple actually they 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 caught it on fire they burned the temple and as as history goes uh the gold that was in the temple kind of me- it was on the temple kind of melted and kind of ran down between the cracks and as they were plundering that gold the only way to get all of it between the cracks is to literally um, remove one stone upon another. And actually, if you go to Israel today, there's a, along the side of the, of the Western Wall, uh, there's a pile of those stones that have been left there to this day. You can see them just kind of randomly piled there. And so this was actually, uh, and his, history plays it out, secular history uh, kind of uh, supports this, that, as a matter of fact, how do we interpret Scripture? Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. That seems a little bit odd, don't you think? Well, guess what? Not stone, One stone was left upon another. And so that's how that was fulfilled. And now, as he said, as he s- sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? So what are they asking about? They're asking about one stone upon another. And, notice that word and, what will be the sign of your coming? And, notice that word and, of the end of the age. How many questions did they ask? three. They ask three questions. Jesus doesn't answer all of them, okay? Sometimes he does this. Does he answer all your questions when you ask him? Not always, to your satisfaction, right? So Jesus is leading the discussion here, right? And he says, (coughs) he answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled." For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Is he talking about the end or is he talking about 70 AD? He jumped to their second and third questions. You see this? He said, hey, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And they said, hey, when's that going to happen? And oh, by the way, when is the end of your age? And and when's your return and the end of the age? And he says, I'll tell you what. Uh, These things are going to happen, but the end is not yet. For nation rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. Pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Do we understand pestilences in various places better than we did three years ago? Yeah, we do. We know what that means now. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. He's speaking now, I believe, um, and again, I wouldn't fight anybody on this, but he's speaking now to Jewish people, remember? And I believe he's talking to uh, the Jews who are, uh, he's talking about the Jews who are alive during the tribulation. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, Jewish people. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Does lawlessness abound today? Yeah. Yeah. Not to get political, but back in the 70s when I was a kid playing baseball in the backyard, would I have ever dreamed up there's such a thing as defund the police? Really? Lawlessness will abound. I remember a couple years ago when this was all big, hot item, Tracy and I were at, at, uh, in Columbus. And we'd gone on a date night, right? We do date night once in a while. Put the top down on the car for a great summertime date night. Golf clubs are in the back of the car. We're going to go golfing, right? Get out. We're going to go stop in the store. Tracy says, What if somebody steals of the golf clubs? I said, We'll call a social worker. I guess that part of the political narrative has kind of died off a little bit. So, uh, Anyway, lawlessness will abound. The love of many will go cold, but, the, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, check this out now. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads now, are we reading? Let him understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Catch this? When you see the abomination of desolation. We read last week that Antiochus Epiphanes in the 150-some, roughly, B.C., set up what was called the abomination of desolation that was prophesied by Daniel. That was in Daniel chapter uh, <clears throat> 11, verse 31. Daniel, we, we know that to be historically fulfilled. You remember we talked about sort of the timeline? If Daniel prophesies it, it's future to Daniel, but we look back on it and it's history to us, right? Well, this was the abomination of desolation that Daniel was talking about here in that verse, was future to him but we know there's also an abomination of desolation that this is sort of a partial fulfillment because we know historically that Antiochus Epiphanes put up that altar to Zeus and yet fast forward Jesus refers to it does it sound like Jesus is talking about a future event or a past event? a future event. Jesus says therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus is talking about a future event that we saw historically a sort of a, uh, a prelude to it. Does that make sense? And so we're talking about a yet future event, and I believe that's um, uh, what's described here. This king will exalt himself above every god. He's going to... Um, uh, Speak blasphemies against the God of gods. He's going to do all of this. It's going to be very much in the face of God. Verse 37. He shall regard. Ne- I'm sorry, 36. I did. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. So this, again, what I'm saying, uh, there's some things we, ne- we can kind of unpack here. Number one, he's going to exalt himself above any God, including Zeus. So we're talking about something separate, something that's sort of an even greater fulfillment than what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Now, he shall not regard uh, the God of his fathers. That is a very Jewish term. Okay, God of his fathers is a very Jewish term. So again, I wouldn't fight anybody over this, but many people believe as a result of this that this Antichrist will be a Jewish man. All right? He will also not regard uh, the desire of women. Some people would uh, take this to mean that uh, he would be homosexual. I don't know that it necessarily means that. I think uh, the desire of women is also a very Jewish term. Keep in mind, in the Garden of Eden, chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, God promised that the Messiah would come uh, from the woman, right, from her seed, remember, he, uh, he, he talked about. And so the Jewish mother, the Jewish women, their desire was to someday be the one that would birth the Messiah. Well, we know Mary got that privilege, but that was sort of the desire of Jewish women. So many people would interpret this to mean, um, rather than his particular orientation, which I don't know if that... Matters prophetically, but God knows, um, would be that he doesn't regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. What's the desire of women to be to birth the Messiah? It's like he has no regard for God the Father, no regard for God the Son, certainly no regard for God the Holy Spirit either. And so um, uh, he's he sets himself above all of this. Turn back, if you again, if you're inclined, to Second Thessalonians. I want to kind of. Again, bring this together. Second Thessalonians, Chapter Two, starting in verse three. Paul says to this, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is is God. And so this is what I was talking about in the, mid, in the midpoint of that tribulation period. The Antichrist is going to, uh, he's, the, he's the man of sin, he's the son of perdition, he's the one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped, and he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. He's only showing himself because God knows that he's not God, but he's showing himself that, and he's exalting himself above all that is called God. And so this man Let me, oh, just, unless the falling away comes first. There's a couple different interpretations of this. Uh, The word means departure, right? So uh, it could be interpreted the falling away like um, people, you know, there's a great apostasy, if you will, some people refer to on planet Earth prior to the rapture of the church. Does there seem to be a great apostasy on Earth today? Do people become less and less and less interested in the God of the Bible? It would appear so. Another way that's interpreted is, is departure. Some people, the word falling away is also translated as departure. Some people think that's a reference to the rapture of the church. Both these things are going to happen before the man of sin is revealed. So you could interpret it either way you want. Okay? Back to Daniel chapter 11. So you got this guy. He's going to rise to power. Uh, The Antiochus Epiphanes is sort of a picture of him, but as opposed to Antiochus Epiphanes, this guy exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped, which means, by the way, he's going to exalt himself above Allah. He's going to exalt himself above every religion on the face of the earth. And so he's going to demand to be worshipped, and that's when uh, he will truly reveal his true colors. Verse 38. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. He's going to basically worship his own strength. And a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So basically he's going to set up his own strength and call that God and uh, declare that to be what everybody needs to worship. Verse 40. And at the end of... I'm sorry. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Now, we talked about the king of the south was like those, those Egyptian kings, and the king of the north, uh, uh, the Seleucid kings. And so we're going back to that language a little bit. Uh, but basically, um, probably this king of the north is actually the Antichrist himself. Some people say that's a separate person, and they'll come against him. But anyway, the point is, there's going to be a... a there's going to be a sort of a coalition of nations from the south, probably led by Egypt, that is going to come against uh, this guy after he's revealed his true colors because we're talking about now at the time of the end, so after the midpoint of the tribulation when he exalts himself. And the king of the south is going to be a group of these, these folks that come up and they're going to fight against uh, uh, this guy. And verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land, again a reference to um, modern-day Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now this is kind of interesting. So this Antichrist, he's going to have this, this flurry of armies coming from the south. He's going to be there kind of from the north. He's going to settle in the land of Israel, and he's going to conquer lots of nations, but he won't conquer Moab, Ammon, and Edom, which are just on the uh, east side of the Jordan River in modern-day Jordan, okay? Modern-day Jordan. What did Jesus say? Hey, when you see the abomination of desolations uh, spoken up by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. What's he say you should do? Flee to the what? Mountains. That's the mountains of Jordan, um, there's an area called Petra the, in the region of Jordan that uh, many people will will be will feel is kind of a, uh, uh, a sort of a, a safe haven for the Jewish people to flee to during the last half of the tribulation period. So it's interesting that even here he says those areas are not cu- uh, conquered by the Antichrist. And he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over the, all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow his, at his heels. And so he's going to stretch out his hand against all these, these, this coalition of, of armies and military strength from the south, and he's going to start to conquer them. But, verse 44... News from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with a great fury and destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his, pal- of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So, somehow, the Antichrist is in the midst of conquering all this coalition of nations from the south. Uh, he's conquered a bunch of others, except for modern day Jordan. And he hears news that's concerning to him from the north and from the east. Now, if we were to play out a modern-day scenario, which we don't speculate too much, but if we were to spell out a modern-day scenario, anybody from the north? What happens if you go to Jerusalem on a map and draw a line straight north? Where do you intersect? Anybody know where you go? Moscow. Moscow. Could there be disturbing news from Moscow. During this time period? Yes. You bet there could. Yes. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 talks about uh, Russia and a coalition of, of Muslim nations that come against Israel. That's probably, most Bible teachers believe, that's sort of around the time of the rapture of the church. So now you're talking seven years later. Moscow could have uh, could have rebuilt their army, right? They're pretty good, pretty good at rebuilding if they need to, right? News from the east. Anybody? any. any Military threats in the East, anywhere anybody know about? China, right? Uh, And so, you know, these things are not outside the realm of possibility, right? And uh, does that mean it's gonna happen tomorrow? No, but it means it could happen tomorrow. That's my point. Could happen tomorrow. I'm not saying it will. I hope you know, I absolutely wouldn't say that. But it could. You know, it's interesting. Revelation chapter nine, we won't turn there, mentions uh, gives mention of a two hundred million man army. Now you're John, the apostle John. You're writing on the island of Patmos uh, this vision that Jesus gives you, and he tells you to write down about a two hundred million man army. And you're John, and you might be tempted to say something like, "Excuse me, sir, with all due respect, there aren't two hundred million people on Earth at this time, right?" which God would probably graciously say something like, just write it down, right? (laughs) That's what I hope he would say, but I wouldn't question him. Time Magazine cover article, February 26, 1965, boasted that China has a army of guess how many men? 200 million. That's just one of those things that makes you say, Huh? See? Huh. You did it. You said it. Huh. So that's where that's at. Okay. So anyway, this guy's going to go out with great fury, perhaps to the Jews. And he plants himself between the seas and the glorious mountain. And that would be uh, probably the seas, the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea and the glorious mountain. And probably has him overlooking the valley of Megiddo. And then turn to Revelation chapter 16. Starting in verse 12. The context here is we're in Revelation chapter 16. We're kind of winding down on the end of the tribulation period. And he says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So kind of a easy access for people from the east, whatever nation they're from. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon. The dragon would be Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the false prophet that that helps out with the Antichrist. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle that great... and the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. And so many people believe that... Uh, you know, as this, king, as this nation from the south is coming up and, you know, there's going to be other nations involved, somehow they're going to come against Antiochus Epiphanes and at some point they're going to, uh, Jesus is going to come down and instead of uh, them fighting each other, they're going to all try to fight Jesus. How do you think that's going to work out? Not very good. And so then, chapter 17 and 18 of of Revelation talk about the fall of Babylon, the global one world uh, political and economic system uh, that would be uh, on earth at that time. And then, chapter 19, verse 11, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. Who do you think this is? Jesus. You might say, I'm not sure. Uh, Okay. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who judges in righteousness and makes war? Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Who, who was sort of dipped in blood, if you will, crucified for our sake? Jesus. Jesus. And his name is called the Word of God. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. His name is called the Word of God. And, his, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Many people believe those who were raptured, those of us who were there, will come back with him at this point in time, at the time of Armageddon. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it... He should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine presses and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, "'Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both great and small.'" Are small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence and by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is the Battle of Armageddon that you've, that you've heard about, right? God gathers up all these armies that are hostile to God, and he, Jesus himself comes down. Uh, Zechariah tells us he sets foot on the Mount of Olives overlooking the Kidron Valley there into, the, into where the, the temple would be, and uh, he declares war uh, with his saints on all those uh, nations that were antagonistic to him, and uh, the birds get to clean up the mess. And it's not pretty, but it's, it is what it is. And the, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, into Gehenna. Chapter 12, real briefly. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So this is the great tribulation, that last last three and a half years. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn away, who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. And so, the people that survive the tribulation, uh, those that are written in the book of life, will uh, will be rewarded accordingly, and those who aren't uh, will be dealt with accordingly. And so. Jesus said this will be, there will be tribulation like nothing that's ever been seen. And so I believe that we've not seen this. And again, if you take Scripture literally, some people say maybe we're in the tribulation or we've been through the tribulation and stuff like this, right? Just check this out. In Revelation verses 6 through 19, we see the uh, description of the tribulation. Just before we get to the end of chapter 8, we see a fourth of the earth's people killed, a third of all trees burned up, a third of sea creatures dead, dead. Um, a third of the ships of the world destroyed, a third of the waters poisoned, a third of moon and stars darkened, all by the end of chapter 8. Have we seen that? No. And so if we're to take this remotely literally, we can say the events of the tribulation period have not happened yet, right? And so again... Those are, those are our two foundational pillars. We take it as literally as we can. I mean, again, you know, a dragon. Is it literally a dragon? Well, that's a reference to Satan. You know, the, the beast. Is that literally like a four-footed beast? No, it's a reference to the Antichrist. So there are some, to be fair, you know, Jesus spoke in parables, and so we've got to give some room for that. But as much as possible... We interpret it as literally as possible, number one. And number two, we interpret the prophecies about Israel to be about Israel. And if you have those things, you've got to read Revelation literally, right? If you can't read a prophetic book literally, what do you, it's Revelation, right? And uh, so these things, if they're remotely literal, we know have not happened yet. So, Michael is mentioned here. He's the angel that always stands up to protect Israel. And um, despite all the world tribulation, God, as a nation, is going to preserve the nation of Israel and a large remnant of his people during the tribulation. They'll be the ones that will be written in the book. Verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And so, during this time of the end, many shall run to and fro. And really, the, the literal... Uh, the the, the Greek word or the Hebrew word for for run there is uh, like running like you know great distances right like our modern day travel right is different than what it would have been in the time of Daniel he wouldn't have even been able to conceive it right and knowledge shall increase you've heard all these statistics about how exponentially knowledge is growing and by the way let that be said that there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom right There's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I believe as knowledge increases exponentially, we're seeing a reduction in wisdom. You could maybe even say exponentially. Who knows? Uh, So it may be that that's a reference to that kind of knowledge. Maybe in the context of what we're reading, right, Scripture's always interpreted contextually, right? Maybe knowledge of prophecy shall increase. Do we know more about prophetic fulfillment than Daniel did? Yeah, he was just right. Can you imagine Daniel? He's just a scribe. He's just writing stuff down. You know, the King of the South is going to do this, and then the King of the North is going to do this, and then this is going to happen, not according to his posterity. And, you know, he's just writing stuff down. But we've actually, we see much of it as history, and even stuff that's yet future to us, we can certainly see all the pieces lined up, right? And, you know, a lot of times you may not see, we may not have lived through the event but we can sure see, like, you know, this is how this is going to go, right? And so that's how that plays out. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the other, to the man cl- I'm sorry, to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And, again, this is probably to be read as how long will these things be? take to play out. Not how long until they happen, but how long shall the fulfillment, the playing out of these things be. And then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it should be for a time, times, and a half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So time uh, is a reference to probably a year. And times is a reference probably again you know you're going to give me a little we have to do some of this uh not exactly literally but times would be two of those so time times and a half of times three and a half years other scriptures tell us 42 months okay so uh this the the scripture helps interpret the scripture And so for that last three and a half years, the tribulation period is when these things are going to play out. And he said, although I did not, I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And so, you know, sometimes God says, that's not for your, con- your concern right now. Does God ever tell you that? Hey, God, what about this? Right? Remember Peter and John there at the end of John chapter 21? Uh, you know, Jesus gives sort of some final instructions. and Peter looks at John and he's like, yeah, but what about this guy? Right? Jesus basically says, that's none of your business. Right? He said it nicer than that, but that's basically what he said. Right? And so I think what he's probably saying here, hey, Daniel, just go your way. You know, um, uh, this is really for the time of the end, and you're not going to live through it. And so just write it down. And he says, verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, that's that midpoint of the tribulation, and the abomination of desolation is set up, that's what Jesus said, hey, when you see this, that's when you flee, there shall be a thousand 290 days blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days and so the ancient Jewish calendar or the ancient calendar had 360 days three and a half years of that would be 1,260 days so what's the 1,290 days and what's that's an extra 30 and what's the 1,335 which is another 75 what does all that mean you want to know so do I Nobody really knows, right? Now, it's conceivable, again, you know, you got this three-and-a-half-year period, right, that Jesus comes back, sets foot on the Mount of Olives, uh, takes care of his enemies, and then I said after that, what's he going to set up? His what? Millennial kingdom, right? Could be that it takes a month or two to kind of put things in order, you know. I mean, he can do it like this, but maybe he's going to spend a month or two to put things in order. We don't really know, and again, um, we need not speculate, But it is important to know. Do you remember, if I can pull this thing back up. It is important to know. When did Jesus say he was going to come back? Did he tell us what day? No, he said, who knows the day or the hour? Nobody knows the day or the hour. But curiously, if you happen to be Alive, and if you know the Lord, I don't think you will be, but if you happen to be alive on earth at that midpoint of the tribulation period, you can pretty much calculate when Jesus is going to come back, set foot on the Mount of Olives, and conquer the Battle of Armageddon. So you would be able to calculate the day or the hour, right? So now you're really confused, right? You were only a little confused last week. Now you're super confused. Well, I believe Jesus is referring to the rapture of the church. And this is why I make the point, because if we're going to read these, these literally, we can pretty closely calculate that day, that second coming date, as three and a half years after the midpoint of the tribulation. When you, know, when you see the abomination desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Jesus' words, count forward three and a half years, and that's when he's coming back, Right? But he says no man knows the day or the hour. I believe he's referring to this. And so this is one of the things, uh, and again, Bible teachers kind of differ on this. They'll say, say, well, it's all that, you know, he's going to come back all at once. He's got to come back in two different times because, again, if you take it literally, right, if you take it literally, the second time could be calculated, right? And so if he says nobody knows the day or the hour, that's what he's talking about, the rapture of the church. Could it be tomorrow? Could be. Is everything lined up? Totally. Is, do we have a real live nation of Israel that could receive all, the, all this prophetic fulfillment? Absolutely. Do we see um, the possibility that uh, Russia could be in alliance with uh, some radical Muslim nations, maybe Iran uh, being the chief one, right? Is that theoretically possible? Are we talking about like pipe dreams or, or are we talking about stuff that could very well happen? Absolutely could very well happen. Is it going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. If I were, ali- I will just tell you this just in case you think I am saying that's it's going to be tomorrow, if I were alive in the days of Nazi Germany, just think about this for a second, I would feel just the same amount of urgency. Right? I think one of the points that God wants us to have as Christians is He wants us to always have this sense that He could come back tomorrow. He's always wanted us to have that. And that's the right way to look. And, you know, I heard one guy say, I was listening to a guy teach this week, and he said, you know, it's never a good time to walk in rebellion to God. That's just, never, that's just not a good idea. It's never a good time. But as we make this case for the fact that, you know what, I hope, by, I hope by, by now you can come away and say, you know, it really could happen tomorrow, right? Guess what? It's a really bad time to walk in open rebellion to God, right? We need to be people who redeem the time. We need to be people who redeem the time. We're closer today than we were yesterday. And so we need to redeem the time. Finally, he says, uh, but you go your way until the end, for you shall rest, and you will rise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Daniel gets to arise to his inheritance, and so do we. So we're closer today than we were in Daniel's day, and we need to know the urgency of serving the Lord. Can I tell you this? I think, th- I, I can't, and I'm a little bit passionate about this, so bear with me. I can't imagine the thought of wasting time on planet Earth today not serving the Lord. Now, does that mean we get to sleep and we get to go on vacation and we get to do stuff like that? I, I, I get all that. I, do all, I have a lot of fun, okay? I'm all about it. But you know what I'm saying? Just to say, you know, I think I'm going to serve myself for a decade or two and then come back and, and be ready for Jesus' return. That's an unhealthy proposition. That's just a very unhealthy proposition. So can I encourage us all to be faithful, to be diligent, because the days are short? You know, 1 Corinthians says, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found Faithful. We are a steward of this day that we've been given. And we don't know how many there are in our lives, in the lives of our friends and family, in the lives of all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that you guide us and lead us. We thank you that you are in control of all the pages of history, past, present, and future, and that you are so motivated supremely by love that you give every last one of us the option to bow our hearts to you while we still take breath. Lord, your grace is amazing. Help us to be those that have an urgency, that know that the time is near. Help us to live as if we believe the time is near. Have your way with us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody, an awesome, awesome week.